We need it. And we need the teaching and illumination of the truth from your Holy Spirit in our hearts. And I pray that you'd help us to have a yielded heart. That we would be ready and and willing to uh, take the truth that we have learned. And to not only accept it and believe it, but Father, that we would apply it to our lives. And help us to do so. Give us the strength in the day that we live. In such a wicked generation, a world that is so dark, I pray that you would help us to have the strength to stand as lights in this dark world. And so, Father, help us, we pray, in the days and the weeks ahead as we strive to be an example and a testimony for you. Help us to have opportunity. And, Lord, as As we take this trip, I pray, Lord, that you would open the hearts and the ears. May there be an acceptance of your truth. I pray that you would begin working on hearts now, and perhaps that through the circumstances of this meeting, that it would cause the hearts to be softened and ears to be opened. I pray that your Holy Spirit will do a work. Bless those who will be traveling. We pray for Miss Linda and, and uh, her daughters. They travel. Give them safety, we pray. Pray for Miss Kim and uh, the prognosis of uh, her testing that she just had done with Ricky and uh, Cindy and so many of our others that we've been praying for. We think of Miss Evelyn, Brother Norm today, and uh, Brother Richard. Pray that you'll, again, strengthen them, Jess and Sarah Harris, Lord, so many of our folks that just need your strength and help. And so, Father, help us uh, today as we come to your word. May you encourage and strengthen our hearts and uh, do a work that uh, can only be done by you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. The book of James, if you will. We uh, started last week. James is oftentimes a misunderstood book. A lot of people believe that uh, it teaches works and uh, salvation and and that that is in contrast with other portions of Scripture. Uh, James is speaking here primarily when he talks of of the things of being being justified by works. He's not speaking of the justification of our soul from hell, uh, but he is speaking here in terms of uh, our life being justified in the eyes of men. And uh, we ended up last week, there's, there's three basic divisions of the book, and I want to just give you quickly those again, and we'll start there. In chapter 1, uh, we have what is referred to as the testing of faith. There are two ways that James mentions that our faith is tested, and one of them is by the trials that come into our lives, and uh, that true uh, faith Uh, is a product of spiritual maturity, and it gives us endurance. It gives us steadfastness in trials, and that we're able to be uh, faithful. There are two things that God gives us during those times uh, when we have true faith and our faith is being tested or tried. Uh, He gives us wisdom, and He enables us to withstand and to endure uh, the trial. And so James speaks of that in in the early part of James chapter 1 down through about verse number 12. And then the second testing of faith he spoke of in chapter 1 was uh, the testing. It's more of an outward testing, and that was a testing of temptation uh, that comes our way. 
in chapter uh, verses 13 to 18 in chapter 1. Uh, he talks about uh, the fact that these trial, these temptations will come. And he specifies very clearly in verse 17 that we don't mistake uh, these these temptations because these are uh, to be tempted uh, with evil. Um, that God is not the one that brings that temptation. He, he does um, uh, expect our faith to overcome those temptations. But the Bible says in verse 17 that every good gift and every perfect gift cometh down from the Father. And so uh, he's not speaking here of the temptations being something that God is sending so much as Satan is bringing into our lives. But both of those things will test our faith. Uh, the trials that come into our life and the temptations that come into our life. And genuine faith will be steadfast. They will endure through it. Uh, they will come out victorious on the other side. We will be uh, faithful through those things. And then the second uh, division of the book is the vast majority of the book, and that is um, uh, the middle section all, all the way through uh, the first part of chapter 5. And that's dealing with uh, James addressing characteristics of genuine faith. And he gives a wonderful outline here. Uh, if you will look with me uh, in chapter uh, let's go to chapter 1 and verse number 19. He lays out kind of a, a three-point outline, if you will, for what he's going to cover over the next four chapters. And uh, in verse 19 he says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, be, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. These are three things that he's charging these uh, Christian Hebrews, these folks that had been scattered by the persecution they were going through and enduring. And he tells them, he says, be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to, slow to wrath. And uh, so in verse number 22, he starts dealing with this thing of being swift to hear. And he says, but be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. And by the way, when he says being swift to hear, uh, the, the context of this is not just that sound comes in and our brain interprets what the, the sound is. But it is a matter of giving ear to or hearing in the, in the sense of trying to know the truth from it or have understanding of it. Uh, and this is the idea. When the psalmist uh, prayed to the Lord and he said, Lord, incline thine ear, he wasn't saying, I want you to hear what my, the, the vibrations of my voice. He was saying, I want you to hear what the purpose of my heart is. He said, I want you to have understanding to me and incline your ear to this. And uh, in verse 22 he says, But be ye doers of the word. And not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. So the, in, the implication here is that there were some who were uh, hearing the Word of God. They would come to church or they would uh, have their Bible studies or they would read the Scriptures. And they would hear the Word. And they might even be in agreement with it. But then they would go out and they would not apply it to their lives. And this is what James is addressing here when he talks about being swift to hear. Uh, is the idea of not only being a hearer but being a doer. And he says, For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is likened to a man beholding his natural face in the glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. And if any man among you seem to be religious... And bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart. This man's religion is vain. And here we have, uh, be swift to hear, slow to speak, bridling the tongue. And uh, uh, then he says, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father 
is this, to visit the fatherless and, father, and widows in their affliction. And we oftentimes focus on that, and that's kind of our thing that a lot of churches are like, well, we need to take care of the fatherless and the widows, and we do. But we often stop reading that verse there, don't we? Because pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is to take care of the fatherless and the widows, but we are also to what? Keep himself, what are the next three words? Oh, four words. Unspotted from the world. That's the part we don't like on this verse, isn't it? Or, or most people don't. The flesh doesn't like it. Let's put it that way. All right? The flesh nature tends to war against that. And um, yet this is what true religion is. Uh, I've heard uh, some fellows, I've talked to some fellows, had some friends of mine that have said, uh, the reason they don't attend church is because it's full of hypocrites. And there's some truth to that, obviously, because we're not perfect. Uh, the truth is, in the strictest sense of the word, we're all hypocrites in the sense that we never line up completely with Scripture. But uh, our heart's desire ought to be to please God and to, not, and to follow His Word. And I told this, this fellow one time, he said that, he said, uh, the reason I don't go to church is it's got a lot of hypocrites there. I said, well, isn't that where you want them to be? Uh, I mean, that's where you get, they get the help that they need. So uh, it's not an excuse to, to stay away from church because of that. Uh, because the truth is the church is made up of imperfect people, isn't it? And we're all striving to become more like Christ, and we come here so that we can get help from Scripture and learn to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be matured spiritually. And that's why we come to church. Some people think we go to church to put on display our moral goodness or our righteousness or our arrogance that we are better than someone else. That is not why we come to church. We come to church to be edified. And uh, the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 4 that He gave some prophets uh, and uh, some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers <coughs> Excuse me, for the perfecting of the saints... And that means the maturing, the growing, the, the equipping, the teaching, uh, the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. That's why we do these things, is every time we come together, we ought to grow a little bit closer to the Lord. We ought to mature a little bit more spiritually. And we ought to leave here loving God more than we did when we came. And that ought to be the same every day as we come to God's Word in our personal time with the Lord, in our personal walk with Him. Those ought to be the goals we seek for. Uh, I know people that... Uh, pride themselves in their um, their punctuality, their scheduled uh, devotional time. And there's nothing wrong with having a time and a place, and I think there's a good reason to have a time and a place for our devotion. But if we're not careful, we will get in the routine and the rut of doing this, and we will lose sight of the purpose of it, uh, that we grow every single time we come to God's Word, that we seek for something that God will do in our hearts to draw us closer to Him. And so Paul, or James is speaking here in verse number 27 of chapter 1 that the uh, pure religion and undefiled is to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. And that's, the, uh, that's something that really, to be honest with you, our churches today could use a, a good revival, a good healthy dose of that part of the verse. Because we have allowed so much uh, corruption, we've allowed so much worldliness to creep into the church, and not only creep into the church, but creep into our personal lives. And uh, as God's people, uh, we should strive to live holy and godly. And according to Romans chapter number 12, that's just our reasonable service. That's just what should be the norm. All right? So that's kind of 
about where we left off last week. <clears throat> and uh, uh, he talks about in, in uh, uh, chapter 2, the very first part of it, he begins to deal with uh, the attitudes of people. And uh, he, he talks about specifically those that would be partial to those that are wealthy and probably shunning of those that were poor. And he talks about the fact that there should not be uh, a respect uh, of one over the other. Look with me in verse number uh, 1, and we're going to read down a few verses here. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there be, for if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect unto him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom, which He hath promised to them that love Him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you, and draw you before their judgment seats? Do they not, uh, do they, do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which ye are called? If you fulfill the royal law according to the Scriptures, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if you have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as, transgre- uh, as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. So he starts dealing with their attitude and how genuine faith will change our attitude. It will cause us to look at the soul of a man... Uh, rather than his purse or his well-being. Uh, and so we find that uh, he starts to deal here with the uh, attitude of those folks. And then uh, he talks in verse number 14 down through verse 26. He moves from the attitude that needs to be changed by genuine faith to now actions. Our actions ought to be affected by genuine faith. Now, Understand this because a lot. This is where a lot of people start going, kind of off the off the road here on the book of James. He is not talking about actions that produce faith. He's talking about faith that produces actions, that produces works, and a lot of people get twisted up here because they start saying, "Well, James is talking about the fact that." If you don't have works, then you don't have enough faith to be justified and to be saved from your sins. He is not speaking here of our justification under the law to be saved and have a home in heaven. He's talking here about our justification in the eyes of men. And so he begins to deal with this idea of uh, works. And I want you to, to keep in mind the the context of it and what he's trying to accomplish as you read through these. <clears throat> excuse me. As you read through these. And uh, let's begin in verse number uh, 14. What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and have not works, can faith save him? Now again, keep in mind who he's speaking to here. These are uh, Hebrews that have been saved and because of persecution have been scattered abroad. And uh, so these are folks that are already saved. But he talks to them about their works. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, ye be warmed and filled, notwithstanding 
ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Wilt thou, but wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Now I want to stop there because this is the verse that gets you mixed up. Hold your place for a moment. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of Romans, chapter number 4. Romans chapter number 4, and uh, let's go ahead and turn to verse number uh, 7. Well, let's, I'm just going to go ahead and read from, from verse 1, because it all deals with it, and we need, to, we need to make sure we understand this. What shall we say then, that Abraham our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works... He hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man, unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works. Very important statement there saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say the faith that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned when he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. So the faith of Abraham took place prior to him keeping the law that God had given him to have uh, him and the, un, uh, the male children of his uh, family to be circumcised, which was a sign of them belonging to God. Uh, and so Abraham's faith, according to Paul, took place prior to him keeping that, that uh, instruction that God had given him. He was not justified by works. He was justified by faith. Paul is speaking here of Abraham's soul. He's speaking here of his eternal destination. Now, if we come back to the book of James, he says in verse number 21, "...was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered his Isaac, uh, offered Isaac his son upon the altar?" So it's a very specific event that James is referring to that caused Abraham to be justified. And this is the word, <coughs> this is the word that is shown here. The sacrificing of his son Isaac was a testimony before men that Abraham had been completely and wholly given to his faith in God. In fact, the book of Hebrews talks about the fact that Abraham knew that if, even if God had allowed him to go through with the sacrificing of his son, that God was able to raise him up again because he trusted in him, he believed in the one who said that this was going to be the seed that would bless many nations. <coughs> and so, uh, Abraham had faith, uh, first and foremost. What, what specifically was then 
the purpose of the sacrifice of Isaac. It was to show men and to be a testimony of Abraham's faith. And so he was not justified in the eyes of God in this sense. God already knew Abraham's heart. It was for those around and for those that would read of Abraham years later to see his faith. And so he was justified in the eyes of men. Uh, verse number 23, I'm sorry, verse 22, Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect. So was the works the basis of his faith or the product of his faith? It was the product of his faith, wasn't it? So we see that the, the faith is what wrought his works. So again, don't get this mixed up where it's trying to get you to think or, or you get confused and say, well, the works is what, uh, what caused uh, there to be uh, the reconciliation between him and God. The faith was what justified him to God. The works is what justified him in the eyes of men. Very important that we understand that. Alright, so uh, then he goes on down as he deals with these characteristics of faith. That faith ought to have works. That's what ought to characterize genuine faith. <coughs> faith ought to produce a change in attitude. Um, and then he, he goes from attitude to works to words. And uh, as we get to chapter number 3, again, what was the outline he gave us in chapter 1, verse 19? He said that they'd be slow to speak. Or, I'm sorry, swift to hear, which meant they were to read and understand and do the words of God. Then he says they were to be what? Slow to what? Speak. All right, so now he deals with, after he's dealt with the attitude and the heart change that took place from hearing the Word of God, now in chapter 3 he's going to start talking about this thing of being slow to speak. My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word... The same as a perfect man. Now again, not meaning sinless, but mature. One that has grown spiritually. The same as a perfect man and able to bridle the whole body. Behold, we put bits in the horses' mouths <coughs> that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold also ships, which though they be great, are driven of fierce winds, Yet are they turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listed. Even so the tongue is a little member, and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. The tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and is set on fire of hell." For every kind of beast and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind, but the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Therewith bless we God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessings and cursings. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. Doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either of vine figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. So out of uh, all of this, uh, James says, he's already talked about being swift to hear, and now he's dealing with slow to speak. He's talking about the danger of the tongue. 
that if a man can control his tongue, he's able to control his whole body. Do you know that every sin that you and I commit is a sin that begins in the mind and then expresses itself outwardly? Oftentimes, somebody will say this, Well, I spoke before I thought. Why? Because the tongue is set on fire of hell. It's a small member, and it is hard to control. In fact, James says, Every beast on the earth has been tamed by man, but the tongue can no man tame. And as you read down through this, and you begin to, he talks about it being set on fire of hell. And I, I heard one preacher put it this way, uh, it's set on fire of hell so bad that God felt that he needed to keep it continually bathed in liquid and put behind two ivory uh, prisms before it can even come through. And the truth of the matter is this, uh, he, he, he paints a pretty dim picture here, doesn't he? Of the fact that we, we can't control our tongues. Um, even those that are the most spiritual and godly among us, the most humble spirits among us, have moments where the tongue gets the better of us, doesn't it? There are times we say things and we have to go back and say, boy, I wish I could take that back. I said that too quickly. I said that too fast. I should not have said those things. We hurt people with them. And we don't even realize it. In fact, the cuts and the wounds of a tongue are far greater than any weapon many times. And so he paints a pretty dim picture here, doesn't he? Remember in chapter 1, verse 9, he says, Be swift to hear, slow to speak. In other words, you need to to bridle that tongue. You need to keep control of it. And if all we read was what we've read so far, then we would, of all people, be like frustrated and saying, Well, how in the world am I ever going to get control of this thing? James says we can't even control it. It's set on fire of hell. But let's look in verse number 19. I'm sorry, verse number 13. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge? Where do we get wisdom and knowledge? Okay, the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The Bible speaks of the fact that we are to increase in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We get it from His Word. We get it from reading this book. We get it from spending time with Him. And so he says, Who is a wise man endued with knowledge from, uh, among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. Spirit of humility. This, uh, But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not the, uh, against the truth. So the, the source of <coughs> getting victory... And bridling the tongue is not by us uh, bringing it into captivity with our own strength and our own will. But as we seek for the wisdom of God and the knowledge of God with a spirit of humility, it is the only way that a man with genuine faith can be slow to speak, to be able to control his tongue. Uh, Years ago, uh, we had a a teacher in our, our Christian day school that used to teach your kids, before you say anything, it needs to pass three rules. First of all, is it true? Secondly, is it kind? Thirdly, is it necessary? And if it can pass all three of them, then go ahead and say it. But if it fails even one of those, control your tongue. This is something that I think is very clear in Scripture. 
that we be people who have a pure heart and a pure mind. That we be a people who are a godly people. People that are uh, working at edifying others. People that are trying to be a builder up and an encourager. And uh, for us to have a tongue that is uncontrolled shows our lack of maturity spiritually. Our faith is weak. Our faith is certainly not uh, the, the way it should be. <coughs> and so these things that ought to characterize our faith ought to be able to control our tongues. We can only do that by having the wisdom that God gives us through the knowledge of His Word with the spirit of humility. And folks, this is something we all can work on. Every single one of us can work on this. There are times that people say something and, and my quick mind or, or slow mind, whichever it is, wants to just spout something back out quick. And I don't know how many times I've had to bite my tongue. I don't know how many times people have tried to argue with me about something and then they leave frustrated. And I'm going to tell you something. It is one of the hardest things to hold your tongue when the flesh is burning inside of you wanting to lash out. But God gives us wisdom and God gives us knowledge and God gives us a spirit of humility. This trying of our faith will work our patience. And so he talks about this. He now then deals with uh, being slow to wrath. <coughs> he says, But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, and devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. But wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy, and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. I'm going to go back and read those again. This is what ought to characterize a person of faith. All right? Verse number 14. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not, and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. When was the last time we had strife? When was the last time we had envy that caused us to lash out and to be confrontational with somebody? I think there's a time to stand for the truth boldly. We're not speaking of those things. We're speaking of things where our temper gets the best of us. Our old flesh nature didn't like the way somebody did something. James says that this kind of a spirit is not from above. Paul told the Colossian church in Colossians chapter 3, he says, set your affection on things above, not on things of this earth. We're supposed, to be, we're supposed to have our minds in heaven and places. We're supposed to be seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. We're supposed to be thinking on things that are pure and, and right and holy and godly and just and true. And yet, James says that when there's strife and envyings, that this is sensual, worldly, and devilish. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure then peaceable, gentle, 
Well, that's a good one, isn't it? A number of years ago, I preached on the fruit of the Spirit. And we took each week a characteristic from that passage in Galatians on the fruit of the Spirit. And when we got to the word gentle, uh, the, the gist of the message was this. We need to treat people gently because the truth of the matter is they're very fragile. Do you know you can say one phrase, one sentence, and wound somebody? You can wound them so deeply and hurt them so deeply that they turn from the things of the Lord and want nothing more to do with Him ever again simply by a single phrase or a single comment that we make. I would go so far as to say this. I believe that according to Scripture, not only our words, but the way that we say those words oftentimes will wound someone. James speaks of the fact that there needs to be a gentleness here. Paul, when he was writing to the Galatians, the churches of Galatia, he said that the fruit of the Spirit, one of the characteristics of it is gentleness. Why is it that as God's people, and especially King James Version, Bible-believing, uh, sin-hating, Baptists, we get the mindset that we have to be offensive in order to be effective? I think we need to be bold. We need to stand fast. We need to be uncompromising on the truth. But Jesus told His disciples that they were to speak the truth in love. There's to be a gentleness about us. Easy to be entreated. Full of mercy. What is mercy? Somebody tell me, what is mercy? What's a good definition for mercy? Not getting what you deserve. If you and I are full of mercy, how does that mean we're to treat others? Well, they've treated me mean, Pastor. You wouldn't believe how badly they've hurt me. You've got to treat them with mercy, don't you? Do they deserve your wrath? Do they deserve your anger? Probably so. But I'm not going to give it to them. Why? Because I have faith that will keep me from being worldly and sensual and devilish in my attitude. I'm going to give them mercy. Good fruits without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. From whence cometh wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your own, what's the next word here? Lusts that war in your members. Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your own lusts. We preached on this last week. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is enemy of God. Do ye think that the Scripture saith in vain, The Spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth the envy? But He giveth more grace. 
Wherefore, he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. We ought to sorrow over our sinful conditions, over our flesh nature. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother, and judgeth his brother, speaketh evil of the law, and judgeth the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that judgest another? Go to now, ye that say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such a city, and continue there a year, and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little while, a little time, and then vanisheth away. For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, he shall be, uh, we shall live and do this or that. But now ye rejoice in your boastings. All such rejoicing is evil. Therefore to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin." He teaches us on the test of genuine faith. He teaches us on the characteristics of genuine faith. And then lastly, as we get to the chapter 5 and verse number 7 and following, He teaches us about the triumph of genuine faith. Let's look in verse number 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Now, remember who he's writing to here. Christians that are under great persecution, that have been scattered... He tells them, be patient, therefore. All of this has been written for their benefit. Under that type of persecution, the temptation was for them to strike back, to try to get vengeance. They they would speak evil of these folks. They were not showing a spirit of graciousness as a Christian should. And he tells them in verse number 7 that the triumph of genuine faith is yet to come, but it is coming. He says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord, because the husbandman waited for the precious fruit of the earth and hath patience for it until he received the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. And I know people that will say, Pastor, I'm just tired. This world just beats us to death. And then James tells me, I've got to live this way. Yes, but there's coming a time. There's coming a time. We'll be so thankful that we live the way we live. That we were able to have works produced by our faith. That it would be an indication of our faith. That it would show forth to a lost world the wonderful blessings of faith in the Lord Jesus. Be ye patient, verse number 8. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Take my brethren, the prophets, who have spoken in the name of the Lord, for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. We have heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, (coughs) neither by earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea, and your nay be nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. James deals here with the victory 
the, the, the triumph of genuine faith. There's, there's going to be some persecution in this life. There's going to be some trials. There's going to be some temptations. There's going to be some testing of our faith by people that will get on our last nerve and test our patience. How do we respond? We respond with works that come from our genuine faith. Not our, not our flesh. Not our carnal side. Not the lust of our, our old flesh nature. But we respond with works that show our faith. And this is what James is speaking of. He talks about the fact, show me thy faith without thy works, I'll show you my faith by my works. And this, I believe, is the key verse in all of James to understand what it is James is speaking of here. That we be a shining testimony that in the eyes of men our faith is justified. And I think we ought to learn a wonderful truth from James, and that is we need to, we need to die to the flesh... We need to put our flesh nature down. And we need to respond to the things of this world. We need to live a life. Our godliness, our patience, our kindness, our mercy, all of it needs to stem from genuine faith. And I hope that will be a help to you. Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed. <clears throat> Lord, once again, we come to you very grateful and thankful for your word. What a wonderful, wonderful book. A book that oftentimes people avoid because they may become confused.